Welcome to a Bible study on the upcoming Sunday Gospel. This is a recording that I do of a weekly Monday night Bible study every Monday night at 7.30 at St. Timothy Catholic Church in Laguna Niguel. If you're interested in joining us live, please email me and let me know or just show up in person. We'd love to have you. But without further ado, enjoy this recording of a Bible study on the upcoming Sunday Gospel. So let's pray. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Good and gracious God, we give you thanks for this evening. We invite the presence of your Holy Spirit here to be with us, and pray that we would each be open to encounter you and your Spirit, listen to your voice, and hear whatever message you have in store for each one of us tonight. We lay this time at your feet. We ask, Lord, that you would remove any distractions, worries, anxieties, from our minds, our hearts, our lives, anything taking us away from this next hour and allow us to be fully present to one another and to you as you speak to us. We pray, Lord, that there would be something in this passage for each one of us and that you would just give us the ability, Lord, to be invited into deeper knowledge and deeper relationship with you. Bless us as we journey through this Advent season and as we anticipate the coming of Christmas with joy but continually uh, asking ourselves how we can best prepare to welcome you into our lives each and every day. So bless this time. We lay it at your feet, and we ask all these things in your most precious name, Jesus. Amen. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Welcome. We are in Matthew chapter 1, verses 18 through 24. Matthew 1, 18 to 24. There are Bibles over here if you need them. And so we're going to read this twice through, as we usually do. First time through, we're just going to get a picture for what is being said. So we have here in the Gospel of Matthew uh, the lead-up to the birth of Jesus. So we have everything that happens uh, in Matthew's account, which is different than Luke's account. They're the only two Gospels that have birth narratives about uh, how all of this took place. They're not contradictory, but it kind of gives you another piece of the, the puzzle or the story. Okay, So we're going to read verses 18 through 24. That's our gospel for this upcoming Sunday, the fourth Sunday of Advent. And so our first time through, just want you to uh, picture this in your mind as we read it. So Matthew chapter 1, starting in verse 18. Now, this is how the birth of Jesus Christ came about. When his mother Mary was betrothed to Joseph, but before they lived together, she was found with child through the Holy Spirit. Joseph, her husband, since he was a righteous man, yet unwilling to expose her to shame, decided to divorce her quietly. Such was his intention when, behold, the angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream and said, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary, your wife, into your home. For it is through the Holy Spirit that this child has been conceived in her. She will bear a son, and you are to name him Jesus, because he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had said through the prophet, Behold, the virgins shall be with child and bear a son, and they shall name him Emmanuel, which means God is with us. When Joseph awoke, he did as the angel of the Lord had commanded him, and took his wife into his home. The Gospel of the Lord. 
Praise to you, Lord Jesus Christ. So now that you get a sense for what's being said here, we're going to read this a second time, as we always do. This time, listen very intently to the words as they're being read. Follow along, just try to empty yourself of everything, your mind of everything but the words, uh, as you hear them or see them on the page. And if anything strikes you, stands out for any particular reason, underline it, begin to reflect on that, and take that as the Lord trying to speak to you through that particular word or phrase. Ask Lord, what are you trying to say to me through this? Why is this standing out to me? What might you be compelling me to do or notice in this particular thing? So second, final time through, Matthew 1, starting in verse 18. Now this is how the birth of Jesus Christ came about. When his mother Mary was betrothed to Joseph, but before they lived together, she was found with child through the Holy Spirit. Joseph, her husband, since he was a righteous man, yet unwilling to expose her to shame, decided to divorce her quietly. Such was his intention when, behold, the angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream and said, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary, your wife, into your home. For it is through the Holy Spirit that this child has been conceived in her. She will bear a son, and you are to name him Jesus, because he will save his people from their sins." All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had said through the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall be with child and bear a son, and they shall name him Emmanuel, which means God is with us. When Joseph awoke, he did as the angel of the Lord had commanded him and took his wife into his home. The gospel of the Lord. Praise to you, Lord Jesus Christ. So I invite you to look over this passage once again, the things that stood out to you. Take a moment to reflect on those, and when you feel so inclined, share with those who are at your table what stood out to you and why you think it did, as well as any questions that you have. We'll spend about 10 minutes doing that. Those of you watching or listening, please share your thoughts with us in comments or however, but those of us here, once we're done doing that, uh, we'll bring it back to the larger group for discussion. So go ahead and uh, share for about the next 10 minutes or so. All right. What are some of the things that are standing out to you? Questions that you have about this passage? Great question. Yes. Oh, gosh. You've been volunteered. <laughs> uh, so I just had, I guess I raised three questions. Okay. okay. Um, one, is there any tradition of what angel would have come to Joseph? Would that have been Gabriel? Just, I know we don't know. Yeah, it's not named in Scripture. There may be a tradition that it was Gabriel since he was involved in the whole narrative, but I don't know if, I can't recall if that's explicitly said anywhere. Okay. Not in the Bible. The third, my second question okay. is, so we understand the Holy Spirit in our concept of the Holy Spirit. Mm -hmm. What would Joseph have understood about that? Like, about that? And my third mm -hmm. question is, Jesus' name, is that a popular name at the time? Is that, like, weird that they want him to name him Jesus? Gotcha. Um, so the Holy Spirit is mentioned in the Old Testament. That phrase is mentioned uh, in different prophecies. It's in Isaiah and a couple other places. It's not mentioned very often. But uh, remember, this is being written after Pentecost has already happened. So Matthew is writing this now, having had a full encounter of the Holy Spirit and aware of how the Holy Spirit's been at work and can think back and recognize, oh, that's what was going on, okay? So um, at this point when it's being written, 
it's probably being contextualized in a way with that knowledge. Okay, but it is mentioned in the whole, in, in the Old Testament, and then the, uh, Jesus' name is Yeshua. It's the same as Joshua. Um, so the earliest uh, um, similar name that I believe we have in the in the Bible is in Exodus, Moses' uh, successor, Joshua, who leads the people into the Promised Land. Yeah. Yeah, Lynn. Okay, on, on the Jewish wedding situation. Yes. Um, there she Mary is Joseph's betrothed. Yes. Okay, but it doesn't mention a wedding itself. Correct. So, but when you're betrothed, you're not married. You're just promised to. <coughs> is that true? Uh, so, in the, their cultural sense, you were legally married when you were betrothed. Yes. Okay. But the process that was more of a legal protection, like you had all the rights of marriage. You could no longer you know, go date or be with anybody else. But the whole process of being betrothed was that this was, in this culture, usually arranged when they were young. Okay. Um, however, when it was formally kind of declared, once they were of age, they were then legally married, but the husband, or soon-to-be husband, would, uh, they would still live separately until the husband could then prepare his own home or go and build or find a home for them to live in. And they would not be formally wed until he had a home to provide for the family. And once he did, he would come with all of his family and all of his friends to the house of the bride and would escort her along with all of his friends, all of her friends, and all of their family to their wedding home. And they would consummate their marriage in the home with everyone outside. <laughs> and then once that happened, they would come out and have a week-long wedding celebration. And that was the wedding. Uh, and that's generally how that happened. And a betrothal was not unusual for it to be anywhere like be like a year long, uh, because sometimes, especially a poorer family like Joseph and Mary, where we know that they weren't well off, we know that they had when they came to bring offerings at temple, they offered those things that were provide the provisions that allowed for those who could not afford the normal offerings. So it could have taken longer for him to acquire a home. He probably built it himself because he was a carpenter, a tecton, which means more like a stonemason. Um, so it probably took some time. But that was the normal process of being, being married. And when you were betrothed, you were legally married. So if you committed adultery, it was the same as if you committed it once you had, our, once you had consummated the marriage. There's, there was no difference. Okay, but here's another thing. Yes. Um, so he hadn't actually taken her to his home. Correct. Yet he found that she was with child. Yes. Okay. Um, wouldn't, like, kind of busybody old women in the town noticed that after the marriage, the baby was born sooner than nine months? Uh, sure, yeah. I mean, but also I think, okay, thinking back, like we think of like that's the perfect ideal. But it's not like the version of a shotgun wedding didn't exist back then either, you know. Um, so this was the standard. And it wasn't considered very culturally appropriate or moral at all for those things to happen. But that kind of thing was probably a little more, I wouldn't say accepted, but like not as unusual as something as heinous as like adultery would have been in that context, you know. Uh, but it wasn't the accepted ideal or the planned part of it, you know. And yes, there would have been gossip. There would have been gossip, you know, that um, she was probably showing, you know, the way that... Um, women's cycles were managed back then was much more publicly aware among the women, you know, in the, in the town, like it wasn't as easy to hide back then because of just the technology and the amount of things that they had available to them. So 
there would have been a lot of rumors and things like that about Mary. And she would already have been in immense danger um, just from the knowledge of the community and their own assumptions. And Joseph here, as is communicated, is kind of in a position to where he can be, when it says he's a righteous man, it means like he follows the law. And if he goes forward with that, that means Mary, well, one of two things is going to happen to Mary. She's either going to be stoned to death. Uh, that's the provision in Deuteronomy chapter 22. Or she's going to go through a very public, um, very embarrassing trial in, in the temple where she's asked to drink this concoction to determine if a curse falls upon her. Um, and that's in Numbers chapter 5, both of which are potential punishments for adultery. And so him being unwilling to expose her to shame, that shows that though he is righteous and though he follows the law, he doesn't want to embarrass Mary. He doesn't want any, any harm to befall her. And so he's going to choose to, to not allow either of those things to happen. Yeah. Yeah, Ellie. Um, so the word Yes. 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 Yeah. Yeah. Dream interpretation is a very, um, in modern context, is a very like sticky area because there's so many, you know, like, oh, if you just saw the color green, it means this. And that's not how dreams work. That's not how our subconscious brain works. Um, so there is a way to interpret dreams that actually can be very helpful because all your brain is trying to do when you're sleeping is solve problems. And all it's doing is creating scenarios from all the things that have stimulated your brain in the last 48 hours and creating a scene for you to solve a problem that's going on in your ordinary life. That's Every dream is about that. Um, however, in this sense, the word used for dream, owner, is a word that is only used in the Gospels in these first two chapters and the very end of Matthew when Herod's wife, or maybe, is it Herod's wife? Yeah, Herod's wife has a dream about Jesus. And she's like, don't harm this man. Like, I had a dream about him. Um, and it's very, like, very scarcely used anywhere else in the, in the New Testament. Um, and it is akin to a lot of those dreams in the Old Testament that the other Joseph had. Joseph, who uh, was sold into slavery by his brothers into Egypt, and he gained favor with Pharaoh by be, being able to interpret dreams. And what those dreams are, you know, in Pharaoh's sense, where he was trying to figure out this problem. You know, like, what are we going to do? You know, people, there's a drought that's coming, or there's these different signs happening. What does this mean? Um, but in another sense, it's very, it, there's a clear uh, prophetic nature to these things. So in scripture, they'll probably, you're probably going to notice they'll use words like dream and vision synonymously. But this was more of like a vision. Like, so when we have a dream, you know, like you kind of know it's a dream, you know, like there'd be no reason for me to fly in a vision, you know, or like, oh, wow, like I'm, uh, I'm seven and the whole cast of Aladdin is chasing me in a shopping cart, my childhood home, which is a real dream I've had. But um, there's no, there's no like theological interpretation there. But when you have a divine vision, there, like all of that kind of dreamlike, I don't know, hyper-reality kind of characteristics fall away. And it's just very clear, like, Someone is speaking directly to me right now. Um, what's that? 
No, this says that he was, this was when he was asleep. So, and God can speak to you in your dreams. Like that is a very biblical, very theological thing that happened to saints as well. Um, but there is a difference. There's a distinctive difference between waking up and being like, well, I had this dream and there was a crab there. And so maybe God is telling me that I need to like go move to the ocean. No, that's not. That's not. A vision when you're sleeping is like God appearing to you or an angel coming to you, revealing certain truths about your life and saying, you need to go do this thing like very clearly. So it's not this kind of like anything you would have to wake up and be like, I don't know what this means. Like it's clear Joseph knows exactly what he's been told to do. And those are two different things. Then it's like it says in First Thessalonians 5, test everything, you know, so it's you have to kind of test it and test that experience and acknowledge like, is there truth to this? Is there something that was revealed to me to where I know that this is legitimate? And like, God has no problem being specific. And God will be very specific if you ask him to be very specific. Most often, we just don't ask God to be specific because we're really scared of what he might ask us to do or say to us. And so if you're not sure, then you can just say, all right, God, if this is from you, give this to me again and make it abundantly clear that this is from you. And he'll do that. He will absolutely do that. And so it's not, God's not just like a one and done, like, well, I guess you missed it. Like, sorry, I had this really great plan for you from the beginning of time, but like went right over your head once. And I guess like, you're just, you're screwed for the rest of your life. Like, good luck, you know, have fun working at McDonald's. That's your new mission. You know, like there's no, I worked at McDonald's. There's nothing wrong with that. But, um, you know, like that's not how God works. You know, he's going to continue to reach out, reveal, um, allow things to happen in your life in such a way that when you're ready, and when you know it's really truly him, you're able to have the opportunity to say the clearest yes that you can. He's not going to just one and done, be very purposefully vague for you to just be left up in the air, you know. So uh, that's the difference is that if God is speaking to us directly in some kind of dream or vision or even through another person prophetically, it's something that is very clearly true that it stands the test of any kind of questioning that we would have. It aligns with biblical principles. And it's something that if we're unclear, that we can ask God to reveal to us more deeply, and he will, versus something very vague like a dream. Yeah. Got a consequence versus like Mary, right? Like she also kind of like questioned too, like how can you speak? But then like, she has no consequence, yeah. So, like, what was the difference there? Because, like, you said you can, like, test it, but then, like, yeah. where is it a matter of, like, okay, yeah, I have faith in you, versus, like, okay, I just want to, like, make sure. So, Zechariah's questioning was a matter of doubt. It was, like, I'm not really sure this is even, like, possible or going to happen. Is this really you? Mary's question was one of logistics. She's like, I've never been with a dude, so how, how is this going to happen, you know? Um, so it was more of just the practicality of like, you know, she wanted to know how this was going to, she didn't doubt that it was going to happen or that God could do it. She just wanted to know how. Whereas Zechariah, it, there's a very distinctive or a very uh, uh, nuanced difference uh, when you read Luke 1 that he's questioning, you know, whether this is even possible because of their old age. Uh, and that is the difference. That's why Zechariah has a consequence and she doesn't. So, yeah, we're able to test and ask, but it's not because we doubt God. It's because we want to be sure that it's actually God who's asking us to do something. Does that make sense? Okay, cool.
Yes, Why Alex. show St. Joseph actually testing? In, like we just assume he tested it? You don't have to. I'm saying if this happens to you and you're not sure, you have the ability to test, you know, just as scripture says, test everything. But it's not like you absolutely have. If you're positive, like God just spoke to me, like he said very clearly, revealed to me things that are absolutely true, laid forth a very clear path and mission for me going forward that's lining up perfectly. Yeah, if it makes sense and it feels as if that was something that was good and beautiful and you encountered God in a very powerful way, like you can ask him to confirm that, but you know, you don't have to be paranoid that like every supernatural experience you have might be the devil trying to trick you. You know, if it's very clear that it's God, it's assume it's God, you know. Uh, the devil is not is not he's not that smart in comparison to God. You know, eventually he's going to ask if he's trying to pose as God. He's going to ask you to do something immoral or evil or something that God would not want you to do. And so if it sounds like something that's really good that God would want you to do, it's not the devil. It's not a demon. Like the devil's not going to be like, yeah, go pray more rosaries and have a great relationship with Mary. Like the devil would never say that, you know, or like go devote your life to charity and like be more generous to people. The devil does not want that, you know. So it's very clear, you know, if it's obscure and it's you feel very wary, pay attention to your instincts, you know. And this is, I'm not just talking about these weird, very rare situations like God appearing to you in a vision or in a dream. But like if, if you're having a moment in prayer in the chapel and you think God is speaking to you or when you're reading scripture or if someone is speaking to you and saying like, I think God is trying to tell me to tell you this, that's kind of more the general way you can, you can kind of test and see does that align with something that God would really want for me or ask for me. Yeah. What's interesting we were talking about is the narrative about the conception of Jesus mm -hmm. in this gospel is written from a guy's point of view. Sure, yeah. Okay. And, 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 you know, Gabriel coming in, and it's not the Angelus, you know. It's, yeah. It's different. And the other thing, too, is, you know, Mary gets an angel when she's awake. Mm -hmm. I don't know if an angel appeared to me when I was awake. That'd be hard for me to say no. Yeah. But, but he gets a dream. And the guys seem to get dreams. Hmm. Um, the other thing too is you got to give this guy credit. He's, he's he's one of the most undervalued, unappreciated saints that we have. Because yeah. if if I was if my fiance and I you know we agreed not to have sex before marriage mm -hmm. and she turned out pregnant, yeah. game over, guy. Oh yeah, yeah. You know I mean, that'd be it. But he's got to trust Mary. Yeah. He's got to trust God. Yeah. This is like a whole trust thing. Going oh, yeah. On. It took radical trust and humility on his part. And that's why Joseph is meant to be very revered in our faith, too. Not to the level of Mary, but um, in our honoring of the saints, there's these words that we use in Latin um, that we, uh, we only latria, praise God. We only worship God. But the saints, we do something called dulia. We honor them. And Mary and Joseph both have different titles in this regard. Mary is uh, hyperdulia. She's the highest honor. And uh, Joseph is protodulia, meaning he is first honor among the rest of the saints. And that's a, a theological titles that are given to them in terms of the type of honor and devotion that we're meant to have. Is, um, is Emmanuel just, just the term just for Jesus? Yes. Well, it's a prophecy about the Messiah. Yeah, so you can, you can interpret Emmanuel as that it is a title because Emmanuel, El is an Old Testament name for God. Emmanuel means God is with us. Emmanuel is with us. So Emmanuel, El is with us. God is with us. Um, but it doesn't say that you will name him that. The prophecy says they will call him that. They, other people will look at Jesus and say, this is God who is with us. 
And uh, this is also could be part of the tradition at the, in biblical times where people had multiple names. People often had a private name that only their parents knew. They had a public name, and that name was often translated into different languages. Uh, so Saul, for instance, uh, Jesus never changed Saul's name to Paul. Paul's name in Greek is Paul. Saul is Hebrew. He changed it when he went to minister to the Gentiles because that's the Gentile translation of his name. And so it's a, it's a, um, a misnomer or like, like a, a falsely believed thing that Jesus uh, changed his name. He doesn't change his name anywhere in scripture. Paul just starts going by Paul because he's ministering to people who are Greek speaking and that's his Greek name. So it's very common at that time to have multiple names because as I've said before, when you, um, you know, know someone's name, if I go Matt and Matt looks at me, that means I have power over him. That was their belief in the Jewish system. And so if you knew someone's private name, their real name that their parents gave them, that meant you had this power and authority over them. So people often had nicknames or public names so that that power or authority wouldn't be given to others. It was just something they went by in public. So you can interpret this as saying Emmanuel is maybe a title of Jesus. It's one of his alternative names. Um, but everyone, obviously, in scriptural terms, knew him as Jesus. So um, you can take that kind of however you would. But yeah, it's a prophecy from Isaiah chapter 7 that is about the Messiah and is fulfilled in Jesus. Yeah. Matt, it says that um, Joseph uh, privately was going to break the engagement. Yes. So what does it mean back then, privately? I mean, you laid it, laid it out very nicely for us. Yeah. So if he's saying, okay, what does that mean? This means that he was not going to do what he was allowed to do under the law by bringing a public accusation against her in front of the elders. So usually what would happen if the woman was going to be stoned is she'd be brought to the door of her father's home and she would be accused there, tried, and stoned on the spot. If she was brought to the temple... Um, in order to test whether or not, if there was not enough evidence to, as to whether or not she had committed adultery, there would be this test where they would take some water and they would mix it with the dirt from the floor of the temple. And they would, she would drink this concoction. And the priest would say this kind of prayer or declaration over her that if you, are, if you have, in fact, um, had relations with another man other than your husband, let your uh, belly swell and your uterus fall. And if that happened to the woman, then it was seen as a curse placed on her by God that she had committed adultery. Um, it, 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 and what's good about that, even though that doesn't sound very good, what's good about that is it was actually protective for the woman. I mean, very rarely would a woman drink just dirty water and her uterus would fall out. That doesn't happen biologically. It's not like the ancient tradition, like, okay, throw her in the river, and if she, if she floats then she's a witch, but if she drowns, she's not. Then it's like, you're dead either way. You know, it's not like that. This was to protect the woman and give her the benefit of the doubt. So that's what usually happened. But if you had sure evidence, if she was caught in the act, she would be stoned publicly. Um, so Joseph doesn't want to bring either of those accusations against her publicly. He wants to, the actual translation, um, divorce her quietly means set her free secretly. That was what he intended to do, was just allow her to freely live the life that she wanted to live with the baby that she had. And if there was another man involved to just set her free to have that life without any accusation or punishment for her. Yeah. Um, okay. So we learned that Joseph wasn't an old dude. right? In that book we read. Yeah. The person was very, very adamant that Joseph was not old. Okay. But we know he died like early in Jesus's 
right? Yes, yeah. So where does Matthew get this story from then? If Joseph, he obviously didn't know Joseph. Sure. So how do we know this? Um, it was probably related to Mary and Jesus as they grew up. You know, he had to have told someone. Yes, yeah. Or heard it straight from Jesus because he traveled with him. And he would have known Mary. Mary traveled with him too as a disciple for a while. You know, so he had the opportunity to hear, you know, these things about this father that they talked about that was no longer around. Um, because there's no mention of Joseph after the scene of them finding Jesus in the temple when he's 12. So we know very, it would be very unusual for him to still be alive and never be mentioned. Uh, even if they were trying to establish the fatherhood of Jesus as being from God, still would have been very, like, people would have been like, wait a minute, his dad's, like, right there. Like, that would have been, like, problem number one if he was still alive. So, um, yeah, somewhere between Jesus' age of 12 and 30, he passed away. So. How old Jesus was or Joseph was. Yeah, we don't know. But it was somewhere between in those 18 years that it's likely, like, very definitively likely that he passed away. There'd be very unusual reason to, like, not mention him if he was still alive. Yeah, because he's called later the son of Mary, and that was not how you address people if their father was still living or known. It was son of Joseph. Yeah. Yes. Uh, going back to how wonderful Joseph was, mm -hmm. especially if he was a young man. Yes. First, he he had his what his wife be already pregnant, mm -hmm. and then in the verse. Next to this, it says that he didn't have any sex with her until after Jesus' birth. So well, that's not what it says. Oh, it doesn't say that? It doesn't say until after. It says up until the moment she gave birth, they didn't have any relations with each other. It doesn't imply that later that they then did either. Oh. Because okay. the Catholic Church teaches the doctrine of Mary's perpetual virginity, that she was a virgin her entire life. Yeah, that they never uh, engaged in sexual relations at all, even after Jesus' well, birth. Oh, yeah. Yeah, it would have been a huge sacrifice. So there was this tradition in the church that Joseph was depicted as being much older because it just came from this very kind of stupid assumption that, like, Joseph would not have been able to control himself unless he was so old he couldn't really do that. That was kind of, honestly, that's kind of like what theologians have said. Um, but if you look at everything that was required of Joseph, like Joseph, when they had to do the census, they traveled like, I think, 90 to 100 miles in three or four days to get to Bethlehem. And that was not a journey that I, an older man could take. You know, like, I, I don't even know if I could do that. Like, that's just, you know, and, and it's, it was a long, yeah, it was maybe 120 miles or something like that um, in three or four days from Nazareth to, uh, to Bethlehem. But walking. Yeah. Yeah, I think it's something like this. Between like, I, I'm pretty sure it's between 80 and 120 miles. Um, yeah, four hours driving. Yeah, that makes sense. Yeah. Um, so yeah, pretty far to walk. You know, so that's not something that an older person could do. Um, very likely. You know, nothing against you if you're older, but like, like I said, I can't. I can't do that either. And I go to the gym five days a week, and I would not sign up for that. Like, you may be pregnant with the Son of God, but we need to figure out a different situation here. Like, let's just. Let's just switch tribes. Let's just go to the nearest tribes town, and we'll just be from Asher or something like that. We're not, we're not doing that anymore. So, yeah, but yeah, he had, he had to do. That. He had to be able to protect Mary on that journey from criminals, from weather, from all these different things, you know. So there's there's a lot of different speculative things about Joseph 
And we don't know definitively a lot about him because he never has any speaking words in the Bible. He doesn't say a single word in all of Scripture. Uh, another testament to his, uh, his humility, you know. I found it interesting when Rick was sharing about, like, that um, the angel had to appear to him or appeared to the men in, in a dream and all the women laughed as if there was this, like, very easily already known assumption that, like, yeah, that's the only way you can probably get a guy's attention is, like, when he's dead asleep. That's the only way God can, like, get in there, you know. <laughs> so, but, yeah, that he, he was, you know, a young, virile, strong, protective man who was willing, had the virtue and the humility and the trust in God to make that sacrifice. It wasn't just happenstance because he simply had old age and had developed this virtue over time. Ellie. Um, no, but he is the patron saint of a happy death because um, he was surrounded by the two perfect people who have ever lived in existence. So that uh, was probably one that was very peaceful and complete. But yeah, we don't know. But we don't know that. He <laughs> was, was surrounded by them. Well, that's what the, the tradition says. He's a patron saint of a happy death because of the assumption that he was with them. You know, there's no reason to believe like, oh, yeah, Joseph like wandered off and fell in a well and nobody knows where he is, you know. Um, yeah, it would be really sad. Yeah. Yeah, I think that would probably be pretty old for him to have lived and died. I mean, he was very likely around somewhere between 18 and 24 when he married Mary, uh, maybe even as young as 16. Um, and so you add 12 years to that. Um, and so he could have been around my age when he died, uh, between my age and 50, but probably not older than that. Um, yeah, in the 60s, would, is a, uh, the average life expectancy at the time was 35, um, you know, for 35 to 40 for, for men. So, um, yeah, very unusual for people to live beyond that just naturally, let alone all the dangers and things like that. So, yeah. Yes. Uh, you mentioned uh, a word, Julia, or something. Yes. So, so Joseph and Mary were both considered Julias. Yes. The word dulia means honor. It's a Latin word for honor. So it's the distinction between the praise we give to God is latria. That's in Latin means praise or worship, and then the devotion, the honor that we give to the saints is called dulia. But Mary and Joseph have these titles. Mary, we give her hyperdulia, highest honor, still not praise like we give to God but we honor her as highest among the saints. And then Joseph is protodulia, first honor, meaning among the rest of the saints, he has the first position. Um, so in, if there is a uh, hierarchy to the honor we give to the saints, it would be Mary, then Joseph, then the rest. No, I don't think so. Yeah. No, I think that comes from a different root word. Yeah. Uh, yeah, Michael, you've had your hand up. Yes. Yes. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. So regardless of the, um, 
manner of birth in, in that time. You know, let's say you adopted a child. That was something that happened then, you know. Um, that was, person was still part of your family. You were still counted in that lineage. So regardless of the means by which you were part of the family, you still carried the name of the father and the geneal genealogical line went through your father. And so it is, you know, we praise Mary for her fiat, for her yes, but Matthew here and the way he records this shows that Joseph's yes was also necessary because it's through him that Jesus has his Davidic genealogy, that he is a son of David. It's through the line of Joseph not through the line of Mary. Because Mary, she's, you know, cousin to Elizabeth, and her, Elizabeth's husband is uh, Zechariah. He's a high priest, which means he's a Levite. They're from the tribe of Levi, the tribe of priests. And so you have one of the remaining tribes of Israel, the tribe of David, all these prophecies about King David, and these tribes that have priestly authority and lineage all coming together in the person of Jesus. But that's only possible if both Mary and Jesus say yes. And it's because of the cultural tradition at the time that even though it may not have been his biological son, that the cultural, the culture, uh, cultural milieu of the time would have still acknowledged that was still the son of Joseph. Like uh, in terms of the blessing, him being the firstborn of their family, carrying on his name, uh, being part of his lineage. Now there is theological speculation that says like, okay, could God have taken the chromosomal identity of Joseph and implanted that into Mary and through the power of the Holy Spirit immaculately conceived in Mary's womb. Yeah, God can do whatever the heck he wants, like he's God. So that is possible. We don't have any scriptural evidence for that, and it doesn't really matter whether it happened that way or it happened just culturally that Jesus inherits that lineage through Joseph because of the way lineages were passed on through the Father. Um, but that is possible. It's, you know, you never know. One of those questions to ask when we finally meet Jesus in heaven. So how did that work? <laughs> yeah? Is, is this phrase, God is with us, scriptural substantiation for God became man? Yeah. yeah. Yeah, you can interpret it that way. Absolutely. And this is a theme all throughout Matthew, because how does Matthew end? The very, very last line of Matthew in Matthew twenty-eight twenty, And behold, I am with you always until the end of the age. I am with you always. So from the very beginning of Matthew, we have God with us. From the very end of Matthew, we have God with us. And so it's this, it's this uh, theme throughout the entire gospel of Matthew. Uh, the presence of God has become man. Um, and so the symbol of, of the gospel of Matthew, you know how all of the evangelists have a particular symbol associated with their depiction of Jesus. Um, Mark is the lion. Jesus is the lion of Judah. So if you go to St. Mark's Basilica in Venice, for instance, there's these lions in the front of it because that depicts how he writes about Jesus. Matthew is always the man, that God has become a man, a human being. And then Luke is a calf. I can't really remember why, or an ox. And John is an, uh, an eagle, a bird. Uh, for different reasons, yeah. So I think the calf or the ox is because it's a sacrificial animal in Luke, and John because the bird soars high and he's the high, the highest theology of any gospel. But they all have those symbols for that reason. One last. Um, the Catholic tradition is that Joseph did not have sex with Mary, and she remained a virgin throughout their whole marriage. Yes, correct. Throughout well, her whole life. The whole life. How how did the Protestants preach that Jesus had brothers and sisters? Well, it's easy to interpret that from Scripture because the English translation of some of the words in Scripture say Jesus' brothers and sisters. Uh, so the word adelphos is used in Greek, which means relative. And in English, we often translate that as brothers. But there's no, brother, no, there's no word for brother 
in uh, in Aramaic or in that language, where uh, or in Greek, in the sense that it's used there. It's just relative or kin, and so you have to choose how you're interpreting it every time it comes up, uh, because it can be used for cousins, it can be used for aunts and uncles, and so you have to kind of base on the context. Um, what is it that's the best translation? And when you don't know, at the time you would use brethren, which means kin, and in modern English that translates to brothers or brothers and sisters. And so for that reason, there's a lot of places where, not a lot, maybe three or four in the Gospels where that's mentioned, the brothers of Jesus. And in Acts of the Apostles, James, who is the leader of the church in Jerusalem, who's not one of the 12 apostles, he's called a brother of the Lord, meaning that he was probably Jesus' cousin. But they interpret that very literally and say, no, Jesus had literal brothers and sisters. And there's reasons to know and believe that they weren't blood-related because um, there's no evidence of Mary having any children after Jesus because at the foot of the cross with John, when Jesus gives Mary to John and John to Mary, so John will take care of her, if Jesus had younger siblings or older siblings, he would have expected they would have taken care of their mother. So if no one was around to take care of her, that implies there's no other siblings left. Um, I'm trying to think of another example. Oh, the example where um, Mary comes... Uh, or maybe it's not Mary, but his Jesus' siblings are there, and they're telling him, you should go on to this town to do ministry. They're kind of telling him what to do. That would be very inappropriate for a younger sibling to do that in the elder, uh, elder respect type of culture they lived in. You don't tell someone who's older what they should do. So that implies that these people who are directing Jesus, who are listed as his brothers, are older than him. And because there's no mention of children before Jesus, he's called the firstborn of Mary. Um, that means they have to be a most likely older cousins or uncles or relatives in that sense. So there's other pieces of evidence why we believe in Mary's perpetual virginity, even though it seems as though some verses communicate that he has literal brothers and sisters. It's a translation issue. I wish you were there to argue with me when they bring this stuff up. Oh, yeah. Invite him over to my house. I'm happy to do it. <laughs> yes. Yes. He's in someone's house. He's in someone's house, and it's very crowded. And he says, "Jesus." They say, "Jesus, your mother and your brothers are here." And he says, um, "Something to the effect of um, those who are my um, my mother and my brothers are those who accept the the kingdom of God, or something like that." Like that, he it's kind of a sign of rejection. It's almost like some people interpret it as like, "Oh wow, you're kind of like thumbing your nose at your family." But what he's trying to communicate there is that the attachment to God and your role in the kingdom of God goes beyond any other commitment you have, even that to your family. I was just wondering what the word, the translation is. It's the same. It's Adelphos, yeah. There's no other word that can be used for that type of relation. It just doesn't exist in biblical Greek. Yeah. Matt, yes. So we were discussing Joseph wakes up from the stream religion and then does he go to Mary when does Mary tell him I'm a child or does this moment, Joseph finds out, then he goes to Mary and she says, yes, I'm a child. Well, we have just the only other line we have in the whole birth narrative happens in one verse. He had no relations with her until she bore a son and named him Jesus. And that's the, that's the last we have in Matthew. In Luke, I don't think we have any moment where she goes and tells Joseph. It's just the angel telling her. Yeah, and then, so then he, we assume he goes to her and says, the angel appeared to me. Well, she went to him first because it says she was found with child through the Holy Spirit. So he knows now. She's not only with child, but he knows it's through the Holy Spirit. That's been communicated to him, obviously, by Mary. Okay, so that awkward conversation happened. So 
I know that we're like married and this is going to freak you out, but you know, and so he's trying to figure out what to do. The angel appears to him, tells him what to do. And then he probably ends up relaying that back to her. Um, or he just kind of lets it be. And he's like, all right, here I am to do this, you know, with you. But I imagine they probably talked about it. It's not something you like. You leave <laughs> lightly. I don't know if any of you have ever seen um, the Facebook Christmas YouTube video. And someone took the birth narrative of Jesus and they put it like as if Joseph, Mary, and all these characters had Facebook accounts. And it's a filming of like them announcing things and interacting on Facebook. It's just like a digital version of this. And my favorite part in the whole thing is that Joseph writes on his wall uh, or Mary writes on her wall, I'm with child, conceive, or, uh, or no, I'm with child. It's a miracle. And then it says like Mary's friend. And it's like, whoa, Joseph got you pregnant? And, um, and, the fr- and Joseph goes, no, we conceived by the Holy Spirit and we shall name him Emmanuel. And the friend goes, well, that's convenient. And then the very next scene says 23 people unfriended Joseph. <laughs> that's really funny. It's just, that's my favorite part of the whole video. Um, but it, what it does, what it helps communicate is like kind of the real life dynamics that probably would have taken place, like the, the lack of belief people would have had. Nazareth, where they lived, was a town of uh, like 200 people or less. Huge, or hugely small town. That didn't make sense. That was an oxymoron. <laughs> like a very, very, very small town. Like everybody knew everyone's business. You saw the whole town that day when you walked around. Like, and there was a, they lived in very small clustered communities where you shared a common courtyard for cooking and you just had your kind of area where you would go and sleep and maybe do like a couple household errands. Every house had one room with maybe a half divider for like a little bed area. That was a common house type at the time. Uh, No locks on the doors. You know, everything was open, audible. Everyone knew everyone's business, what everyone was doing, like in every sense of the word. And so, you know, this would have been a, like the worst possible situation for like gossip and uh, things like this to happen, and how humiliating and difficult this must have been for both of them to undertake and to sacrifice in order to say yes to the Lord, and yet they did it. And this is a great example for us leading up to Christmas, this last Sunday of Advent, to think about what are we willing to endure? How are we willing to say yes to the Lord and not worry about what are other people going to think? What are, gonna, what, what are other people going to think of me if I start you know, making the sign of the cross before meals, or I start saying, God bless you instead of bless you, or I start sharing, you know, uh, how God has worked in my life when, when the subject comes up, you know, or when people ask me how my weekend was when I start saying, oh, I went to mass and it was great. And the priest said this, and I just really thinking about that, like to set aside that judgment, those things are all very easy things to do. But in our mind, we complicate them and think like, oh, I don't want to be judged. I don't want to be you know, uh, losing opportunities or even get fired from my job simply from saying these things? Like, are we willing to let go of that possibility of humiliation? There's a reason why humility and humiliation share the same root word. That it's making us less attached to the opinions of others, through our status in the eyes of others. And no one embodies that more than the Holy Family. And as we're leading up to Christmas, celebrating, you know, this, this great feast of God becoming man to not only think about how are we willing to say yes, but then I also think in, 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 in a second sense, as we're reading this passage, reflecting on it this week, as we hear it proclaimed on Sunday to think about, do I have an openness to where God can come and speak to me in unexpected ways? 
Now, I don't know about you, but I kind of give God like the expected time, right? Like I'm attuned to God when I'm here, when I'm at mass for an hour, when I'm in the chapel, when I'm in a dedicated moment of prayer. But do I treat like every opportunity in life, every relationship, every experience, every second of every day as an opportunity for the Lord to speak to me, as an opportunity for me to encounter the Lord? I was with one of my priest friends recently, and there's some other people with us, and we we're around a table and just kind of having some drinks and some food and chatting about theology. And this priest said, you know, this to me, what we're doing around this table is more like what liturgy should be than some of the masses that I go to or that I celebrate at churches. And what he was getting at there was like, this is where the real life of God's work and encountering God through other people happens. And we had this kind of very spirited discussion. We're really like talking about how to be devoted to God or how to do the things of ministry or relationship with God well. And he was comparing that to the normal kind of average, you know, mass experience that he sees or he even facilitates at a parish and that he experienced God more in that moment than the average experience at mass because we don't have this openness as often to encountering God in the unexpected places. But when we do, he can show up in really beautiful and profound ways. And so I think for me, and hopefully for you, maybe one of those things, and maybe one other thing, but um, how we're willing to say yes to God sacrificially, let go of other people's opinions of us. Secondly, are we allowing ourselves to experience or expect God in the unexpected places? And the third thing I just totally forgot. It was there, it was on the tip of my tongue, and then it disappeared. I was like, oh, I'm going to say that, and now I have no clue what it was. So it didn't matter. You guys didn't need to hear it. Maybe it was just for me, and I'll remember it later and be like, okay. So those two things, those two things. Uh, to think about as we hear this reading proclaimed this Sunday throughout the week as we're preparing, especially for Christmas, um, Jesus is seeking to be born into your life each and every day. So how are you having the openness to encounter him in the unexpected people, places, and experiences of life? And are you willing to let go of what other people might think or how other people might respond if you were to really say yes to what God is asking you? Let's pray. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Thank you, Jesus, for this time in your word. We pray that this passage will continue to be something we reflect on this week, continue to speak to us. Pray that it would inspire new questions and reflections. And when we hear this proclaimed this coming weekend, that we would be drawn into a deeper relationship with you, be challenged and convicted in the ways that you are asking us to grow and respond to your love. Help us to live each day as your disciples, to be good hearers of the word and better doers, and that you would bless each one of us in the ways that we most need it, as we seek to welcome you to be born into our life each and every day this week. Help us to anticipate encountering you in the unexpected places, to have an openness to experience your voice and you speaking to us in every facet of our lives, and to let go of the judgment or the fear of judgment from others so that we can lean into who you are calling us to be and how we can be more faithful to you in every aspect of our lives. We pray all of these things in your most precious name, Jesus. Amen. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.